Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Master the NEC, where we talk about the National Electrical Code and, of course, all things electrically related. You never know where we're going to go. My name is Paul Abernathy, host of the show. Thank you for joining me again. We're over 400 episodes uh, of podcasts, and they're all available over on masterthenec.com. You go to the podcast button. You can listen to them there. But if you want to listen to them on your device while you're on the go, of course, you can listen to it on Spreaker, Spotify, Deezer, iTunes, iHeartRadio. Just search for Master the NEC and you'll find us. Um, And be sure to subscribe. But also over on our YouTube channel, obviously, we put all of our podcasts over on the YouTube channel as well, so you can listen to them there. that's at uh, youtube.com forward slash master the NEC. So if you want to listen to them there, again, that's a neat little app on your phone. You can listen to everything and watch videos. Of course, we do quite a few videos as well, but um, we do way more podcasts than we do videos. Now, today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about fire pumps. We're not going to cover everything in fire pumps. I know that some people are saying, oh, crap, you want to tell us everything. We're not going to talk everything, but we are going to talk about Article 695 and kind of give it a little bit of discussion today. But before we do that, again, we want to uh, shout out to our sponsor. So if you've gotten any of these neat shirts that we have with Tesla on it, we have a unique design with Tesla. Um, I'm a big Tesla fan, as most of y'all know. Um, but we have the Master Electrician, Show Your Pride. We have... Uh, journeyman we have electrical inspector engineer we have coffee mugs stickers phone cases we have a lot of stuff so check it out at electricianpride.com so i'll run that commercial and then we are going to jump into our lesson for today today's show is sponsored by electricianpride.com your one-stop shop for electrician specific t-shirts hoodies phone cases mugs die-cut stickers, leggings, and so much more. Featuring unique designs for electricians, journeymen, and master electricians, as well as electrical engineers and electrical inspectors. For more information on all the products that are available, visit us at www.electricianpride.com today. All right. Well, give it a shout-out and uh, check it out. Share it with everybody, electricianpride.com. That is a division of Electrical Code Academy, Inc., that it has all of our, our merchandise when it comes to clothing and shirts and face masks and all that kind of good stuff. So give it a shout. We appreciate all your patronage there. All right. So on today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about fire pumps. Now, fire pumps are essential to buildings that require it based on this type of construction, based on the height, based on what it is, certain number of occupancies. And if a fire pump is required, let's, let's kind of talk it that way. If a fire pump is required, then me as an electrician, we've got to know how to wire it. Now, whether or not a building gets a fire pump or not is generally going to be designed by the engineer, and they're going to say whether or not the building gets a fire pump, and then we follow those drawings or follow those blueprints and we're just going to we're hopefully all of that gets done ahead of time but in the event that you're in some states like texas where you don't have to be an engineer to design even a a multi-story building as far as the electrical even the master electrician can design it so it's important that when you're dealing with something like fire pumps that you have a basic understanding now you don't need to be an expert the code is here the 695 is only a couple pages long, and there's some general things that you need to know in order to be very proficient with fire pumps, or don't be afraid to reach out to people that can give you some insight. Don't think you have to be a know-it-all. Um, there's people out that will be glad to help you. There's some people that are uh, more experienced in the conductor sizing, and there's more people that are um, experienced with um, overcurrent device sizing if you have one. Again, not a requirement for fire pump applications, but if there is one, we'll talk about that today. Then how do you size it? Um, many people have heard about the the 600% or six times rule and, and things like that. And they're also familiar with 430.251 when lock rotor and, you know, and they're also familiar with things like NFPA 20, which is the standard when it comes to um, installation of stationary pumps for fire protection. So, again, you might even have a copy of that, and it's great to have because a lot of the stuff from NFPA 20 
is extracted and put into Article 695. So the NEC in 695 is pretty much subordinate to what's in NFPA 20. The good news is most of the most important stuff that you need as far as from the electrical aspect of that is extracted out of NFPA 20, and it's going to be placed into the NEC. And, of course, you know this because if you look at any specific section or any item, and behind it it has brackets, and it says 20, and it'll have colons, and it'll say, it'll give a 9.221, whatever it is. That is the actual section within NFPA 20 that this is being extracted from. That kind of tells you where it came from, if you will. So we get a lot of guidance with that. So it's important to know that we do have other documents that you have to be aware of. Of course, the NEC will remind us this as well with informational notes, and informational notes are great because they're kind of like roadmaps to important information. Uh, Not enforceable, but great information to help you get a better grasp of what you're working with within certain areas of the NEC. Now, of course, when we're talking about fire pumps, Article 695, the first thing that we always teach people to do is we really need to look at the scope so that we can make sure that we're focusing on what's important. And if we're dealing with fire pumps, we want to know what's covered by 695. Now, that's not to say that some of the things that we might run into here, for example, like jockey pumps, which is a uh, basically it's the uh, uh, pressure maintenance pump, that is also covered by things like 430, Article 430, which is dealing with motors. And then you're going to have some situations where even the fire pump is a you know considered a motor, which might be covered under things in 430. So again, we always have to remember the understanding or the layout of the National Electrical Code, right? So chapters one through four of the NEC apply broadly throughout the National Electrical Code. And then, of course, you got chapters five, six, and seven, which will supplement or modify chapters one. Okay, so it say modifies chapters one, chapter two, chapter three, and it goes all the way up. Okay, all the way up to what? Now, you should know this by your study when you're looking at the code arrangement, chapters one through seven, right? So anytime I have something that's in chapters one, two, three, and four, it's going to apply. But five, six, and seven, they're there to supplement or modify chapters one through seven. Of course, you have chapter eight, which is dealing with communications. And it's not subject to the requirements of chapter 1 through 7. We all find this based on the code arrangement. That's 90.3. So you can go back and and look at that in case any of that is confusing to you. Um, However, if there's something in chapter 8 that makes a reference to something in chapters 1 through 7, then obviously it's applicable at that time. But, you know, interesting that chapter 8 is kind of a standalone, but it will make reference to other things like, for example, 300.4, making sure that you're protecting it from physical damage and things like that. So all of those things are really just good to know. And interesting enough, if you go to 90.3 in your code book, you have a neat little figure there that kind of regurgitates uh, what I just talked about in the, gr- in the grander scheme. And, of course, it lets you look at Chapter 9. And, again, that's tables. They're applicable when they're referenced. And, of course, informational annexes, which, again, are just good information. All right, so when we look at the scope of 695, We need to see what's covered and what's not covered specifically when we're working in this article. So we're going to look at 695.1a under the scope, and a is talking about covered. And here's what it says. It says, this article covers the installation of the following. And we've got two items here. The first one, it says, it covers the electric power sources and interconnecting circuits. So this would be if you have a fire pump and you have a... Um, transfer switch that is either incorporated inside of the controller together as like a combination or if it's independent where you have the transfer switch and then you have the controller uh, you have the ability to do it separate or as a combined unit of course we'll cover that also a little bit later but it's telling me that the electric power sources and the interconnecting circuits are definitely where referenced covered under Article 695. That doesn't mean that you don't have other areas in the code that are going to be applicable, so just keep that in mind. Next, it says, number two, 
that 695 also covers the switching and control equipment dedicated to the fire pump driver. So definitely that's going to cover the fire pump controller, uh, the transfer switch, whether they're separate or in a combined unit. Uh, So again, it's going to cover... Uh, again, we already saw it's going to cover the sources to the fire pump. That's going to be in 695. Uh, everything from the controller out to the fire pump, uh, out to the pressure maintenance uh, pump, and everything like that. Um, the pressure maintenance pump you're going to see is something the performance maintenance and acceptance testing of the system and the installation of a pressure maintenance or jockey pump is not covered by 695, which is quite interesting. Uh, but you're going to learn all what's covered and what's not. But the most important thing to remember is that the electric power sources and interconnecting circuits, as well as the switching and control equipment dedicated to the fire pump drivers, are covered by Article 695. Now, let's talk about what's not covered. I kind of kind of let the cat out of the bag a little bit. But what's not covered by 695, which doesn't mean it's not covered by somewhere else in the NEC. It's just not specifically covered within the guidance of Article 695. Now, the first one, we have three items here. The first one that's not covered is, I kind of alluded to this, it is the performance, the maintenance, and acceptance testing of the fire pump system. Now, this is going to be covered under things like NFPA 20. This is going to be covered under your local jurisdiction where possibly the fire marshals or your fire alarm division, they're going to want an acceptance test. They're going to make sure everything works and everything runs, but that's really not what the NEC is all about, right? Once the electrician wires this and does everything, you know, that's the NEC is not one of those aspects when it comes to the the performance, the maintenance, and acceptance, okay? Now, it also goes on to say that the internal wiring of the components of the system are also not covered. Now, that is interesting because if I have a fire pump controller, or a transfer switch that's designed for the fire pump system. And most of the time, you're going to buy these as a combined unit, but you can get them separate. The internal wiring that takes place is not something that's subject to the NEC. That is internal. That comes with the piece of listed equipment. And yes, the fire pump controllers and all that are going to be listed equipment. You don't have to recreate the wheel here. Don't try to go in and say, well, that, that, that looks like those conductors are a little too small or this is a little too small. If they pick the right fire pump controller and transfer combo with the horsepower of the, the fire pump and they did this under engineering design, for example, or when you buy the fire pump, the company will rate the recommendation for the type of controller you need, working really closely with those manufacturers, then there's no sense in trying to recreate the wheel here. So the internal wiring is designed for a reason. So there's no need to get into that and have somebody say, well, that wire looks too small. This is giving you directly telling you that it's not covered. So walk away from that. Uh, Number two says the installation of a pressure maintenance jockey or makeup pump is not covered by Article 695. But there is an informational note here that's going to remind you that it's still a motor. It's still got to meet the requirements under Article 430. So keep that in mind as well. So don't think that you get a, you know, a, get a, a free pass when it comes to the installation of a, a jockey or a makeup pump. All right. Uh, Primer pump, we sometimes say Uh, it's still got its rules and it still has to be met. Okay, we want to really focus on the fire pump. But again, don't lose sight of the other aspects that we're dealing with. Um, And the next one is in the in the last one in the not covered aspects of 695 is a transfer equipment that may be upstream of the fire pump transfer switch. So in many cases, you might you're going to have a pump room. Whereas where you're going to have this transfer equipment in the fire pump room, you may have a transfer switch upstream. That transfer switch upstream is covered by other areas in the NEC. It is not covered by Article 695. We're focusing on the equipment that's associated with the fire pump in 695. Now, that does not mean that we might have some element of selective coordination that we have to be aware of, um, things like that. 
it's just a general statement saying, you know, you might have transfer switches that are outside of the um, fire pump transfer, and it might be upstream, and that is not governed by 695. It's got its own rules that has to be met, but it's not going to be found within 695. Okay, that's all that's really making a statement to say. So I have two items that are covered, telling you what's covered, and then I have three items or statements under 695.1b that says what's not covered in a fire pump situation. So that's the scope. So now that we, we kind of know what we're dealing with. The next thing that we want to look at is uh, two definitions that I think are pretty important. They come into your aspect whether or not you're, you're dealing with an on-site generator as an alternate power source, whether or not you don't have reliable power there. And again, that gets something that you have to work with your AHJ to determine this. I don't think the electrician can make that full determination. Uh, one, we don't know the utility. One, we don't know what's acceptable by the AHJ to consider as reliable power. So we need to know what the power sources are. Well, we're all familiar with electric utility. So bringing an electric utility to a building, whether I'm bringing it under um, uh, 230.3, or actually it's 230.2, sorry, whether I'm bringing the the acceptable numbers of service conductors uh, or services to a building might be something that I need to know if they consider that a reliable source or not, whether or not I have to add something uh, like an on-site standby generator or not, in order to be a alternate source of power. I need to know all these things, but I do need to know what my power options are depending on the complex that we're dealing with. So one example would be in the definitions in 692.2, and remember that the definitions that are in .2, it'll tell you at that section whether or not they're only germane to this section okay, or this article or they apply broadly throughout the NEC. Well, in our case, under 695.2, these definitions that we're going to be talking about, at least two of them, are only applicable to uh, 695. All right? So the first one we're going to look at is what's called on-site power production facility. What is that? Now, that's different than a utility, whereas you're paying, um, I don't know, in in Virginia, for example, it was Dominion Power. Um, So... I'll use that as as a reference. So that's a utility that's bringing power to the building. But you could have a large campus. You could have a large commercial facility, a large industrial facility. You could have a situation where you have what's called on-site power production facility. Now, the difference between that and the definition we're going to look at for on-site standby generator is it a generator on-site power? And I'll read the definitions again so we don't have uh, confusion. It's on and off, on and off, and it's only on when necessary. Whereas an on-power production, uh, production facility is a normal source of electrical power for that site that is expected to be constantly producing power. So it's, it's an on-site localized production facility. Now, I've seen this, for example... Back in Virginia, the city of Richmond, you have the Richmond Spiders, the University of Richmond, uh, some of the campus, they'll have their own on-site power production facilities, and they will be producing power there. Okay, so that is a reliable, constant power, and it might be reliable, and when I say it's reliable, again, again, they're going to have to qualify what's reliable or not. Uh, and uh, what their downtime is and how long it stays up or what's the frequency of downtime and things like that in order to qualify. Um, And if you don't know what's considered a reliable power source, interesting enough, you can go to NFPA 20, which is that document I was telling you about. And in there, there's there's a section that kind of describes their example. And, of course, then it gives you kind of an answer section that also gives more detail and more explanation. Um, And so the section within NFPA 20, and I also should tell you this, if you don't own an NFPA 20, that's okay. You can go on NFPA's website, get a free account, and you can look at this document for free on the NFPA.org website. You don't have to pay for it. Now, if you want to own it and you're a designer, you should have it. But if not, it's great to look at for free if you need to get it uh, and look at it. And so basically it's section 9.3.2. 
And then, of course, it's also a 9.3.2, which gives you kind of an explanation. That kind of gives you the guidance on what is to be determined as a power source that's considered reliable. So I encourage you to give that a look. We're not going to do that in this episode. But if you determine something's reliable or not, that allows us to move on to the next step, whether or not we need to have some type of alternate power or if we consider this power source reliable. And if it's reliable, what we mean is that in the event that we have an issue that we need that fire pump to come on and we need it to be powered, that it's going to be powered most all of the, the time, very reliably, and we don't run into a situation where we don't have power and then all of a sudden the power pump can't go if it's electric driven and now the building burns down and people get killed because they can't get out of the building. Remember, a fire pump in a building is not to save the building. Now, a byproduct is it might save the building, but it's really there to help people get extra time so they can get out of the building. Okay? It's a preservation of life. Not so much the building, it's the life. That's what we're focusing on. So that's an interesting one to look at. So on-site power production, the definition, again, is a normal supply of electric power for the site that is expected to be constantly producing power. Not temporarily, not intermittently, but constantly. It's its own production facility on-site, whether it's solar, whether or not it's uh, water-driven, or whether it's wind. Again, if it's constantly, if it has different layers in order to keep it as what we consider an on-site power production facility, again, work with your AHJ if that's a determination. A lot of big campuses and things like that do have such. Now, the next one is on-site standby generator, which is probably what I see the most. If we determine that an electric utility is not reliable, they have a lot of downtime, then the AHJ might say, I'm going to need you to have a separate on-site standby generator. And that's probably what we see the most. We have a utility which they deem is unreliable, and then they want an on-site generator to add that overlapped enhanced reliability, right? So that's typically what we see. But that's not always the case. You could have a utility that's deemed very reliable, and then the AHJ could say, you know what? It's reliable. That can be the only individual source of power to this building, and it could also support the fire pump. Now, that takes us into a different area because I, you know, I want to read the definition of on-site power, uh, on-site standby generator before we move into what we call um, the three different elements of what I call power sources when it comes to fire pumps. And that's what we're going to go to next. But first, let's read this definition so that we kind of, we know what a generator is. We know what it's trying to do. It's only on when necessary. But what is the definition? In 695.2, the definition of the on-site standby generator, which again is used throughout this article as well. And so it is a facility producing electric power on-site as an alternate supply of electric power. Okay, so it's an alternate. It's not the primary, it's the alternate. It differs from on-site power production facility in that it is not constantly producing uh, power. Makes sense, right? So you only need the generator when signals are sent to the generator that you have a power loss. So it makes sense. So we have the two things. So really what you've got is you've got utility power, you have on-site power production facility, which is independent from utility. And then, of course, you have the on-site standby generator. You really have those options for your power source, if you will. So that takes us into the second thing we want to talk about is dealing with these sources of power. So we're at 695.3, and obviously we're talking about electric motor-driven fire pumps, right? So the power sources. We have some unique options here. And the reason I say they're unique because... You have the ability to power a fire pump by its own service. So 230.2 allows me to have a separate service to a building for the fire pump in addition to the normal service to the building. Okay, I'm allowed to do that. Um, And, of course, you want to treat that fire pump separate. You don't want that to be uh, near the normal service so that confusion won't set in and somebody accidentally turn off the fire pump that they don't understand. So, again, remote and we'll talk about that. But you're allowed to have multiple sources to the building, okay? And so, or 
you'll find out that if I deem that utility is reliable, I can have that utility to the building. It can cover the building, and if it's sized adequately, can also provide power to the fire pump with that one power source to the building if it's reliable. Again, have to work really closely with the utility in order to make that determination. And usually we would request a letter from the utility in order to get a determination of what their reliability status is. And again, that raises liability for them because now they're making a statement. And what we found when I was in Virginia uh, at the city of Richmond, and I would mandate this and I would ask utilities to provide a letter of reliability, they would not provide it. So that's why most cases, and I would say probably in all situations, we would have what would be an on-site standby generator, simply because they weren't willing to put their self out there. And, you, and can you blame them, really? Um, so anyway, that's kind of the, the thought process that you'd have to go through with this. Now, let's talk about the uh, power sources now. Because I kind of gave you this 30,000-foot view of the power sources, what you could have. So now we're going to kind of dig it in a little deeper. So first thing we're going to look at is what's called individual sources. So I can have an individual source of power to the fire pump system. And I can look at it in different ways. So let's look at the first thing. So let's read it and understand what an individual source is before we get into the options of individual sources. It says, now, again, for those that are, are following along, we're in uh, 695.3a. Uh, and, again, I should mention we're in the 2020 edition of the National Electrical Code, just in case I did not mention it earlier. Uh, we're talking about individual sources of power. It says, where reliable. So that's the very first thing that it says out the gate. And it has a comma, so it wants you to pause for a second. It says, where reliable. And it probably could have been better phrased and says, we're deemed reliable, okay? But anyway, it says we're reliable. It says, and we're capable of carrying indefinitely the sum of the locked rotor currents of the fire pump motors. You know, it says motors with a plural because you could have more than one. It says, and the pressure maintenance pump motors and the full load currents of the associated fire pump accessories equipment when connected to this power supply. It says the power source for an electric motor-driven fire pump shall be one or more of the following. And of course, we're going to look at, of the individual sources, we're going to look at three of them and kind of talk about them at a a really high level, but we're going to talk about them. But this is an important statement because it's saying I could have one if it's reliable, but you know what? I can have more than one in order to maybe meet the reliability of the aspect of providing power to this fire pump. So I'm I'm given a bunch of options here that we have to examine, right? So, but one thing I want to take away from it is the source of power has to be able to handle the locked rotor currents for that fire pump and the locked rotor currents for that pressure maintenance pump, and then only the FLC of the associated fire pump accessory equipment, okay? So when we're thinking about the capacity, when we're thinking about the the ability to be able to to handle all this fire pump, when we're selecting this source, we have to keep in mind that we have to meet this potential for locked rotor, and we also have to have this potential for the FLC of the other accessory equipment. All of this has to be taken into consideration. And we use the term sum because once you determine the lock rotor for each one of these and the rules that are going to correspond, that we can actually handle the load. The source has adequate enough to handle this load. That's, that is an important aspect of this. And especially when we're dealing with this individual source options. Now, let's kind of dig into these. So you'll see that there's three of these here. And the most unique one of these is going to be number three, Uh, when it comes to dedicated feeder, but you have three options that we want to talk about. Now, number one is probably the, the, the number one. This is the one that's used the most, okay, in this individual sources, and that is the electric utility service connection. Now, let's kind of read it because I, I do feel the need to break it down a little bit. 
Um, it is says, here's what it says. It says a fire pump shall be permitted, so this is a permissive statement here, to be supplied by a separate service. You don't have to have a separate service, and we'll kind of read that here in the next sentence, but you're permitted to do this. So I could have a service to a building. And again, you got to remember this is also permitted to have multiple services to a building under 230.2 as well. Um, but at the end of the day, I am permitted to bring a separate service for this fire pump. Okay, so I can bring it in. But then it goes on to say or. Now, when you're looking at the National Electrical Code, or is an important word, and is an important word. Because when you see and, it means you have to do this and that. When you see or, it's giving you the option to do this or that. And so here we say, you know what? We're going to let you, we'll permit you to bring a separate uh, service to this fire pump. That's perfectly fine. It's treated like a service. You run it like a service. It's a service. But it says, or from a connection located ahead of and not within the same cabinet, enclosure, vertical switchgear section if you're dealing with the switchgear, uh, or vertical switchboard section if you're dealing with a switchboard application. And it can't be in the same space as the service disconnecting means. So if it's a vertical switchgear section, then it's going to be um, in a space that does not also contain the service disconnection means. So it's usually it's going to be ahead of it. Obviously, it tells you to be ahead of it. Um, and so there's a place where you're going to make a, a tap, if you will, in there, right? Um, so key thing to remember here is you are allowed to bring your own service or if the service is considered reliable and it's a utility, then I can make a connection on the line side or in ahead of the service disconnection means. Just can't make that tap within the same area of that service disconnection means. Okay, pretty much straightforward, if you will. It also goes on to give us some more direction. It says the connection shall be located and arranged so as to minimize the possibility of damage by fire from within the premise or from exposed hazards. So whether or not you're buying a piece of switchgear, a switchboard that's designed for this, that has a separate space, that is, that's kind of sealed off or isolated, or this is just forcing you to think about your design. What you don't want to have is the switchgear, the service disconnect, blow up, and because of its proximity, it takes out the connection that is ahead of it and takes out the fire pump, right? Uh, and you also don't want something to happen where um, if you have a fire that takes out your service disconnection means and subsequent devices, that it also, as a result, will take out your connection for your uh, fire pump. So you want to think about your design, and many times it is a, a thought that really weighs heavy on a design engineer on how he wants to do this if they want to make that connection ahead of the service disconnection means. The code's allowing you to do this, but you do have to think about that and, and kind of think of, of those considerations. Now, it also goes on to finish out and says, a tap, which is what we're doing here, a tap ahead of the service disconnection mean shall comply with 230.825, which incidentally is all of the allowances in 230.85 are for what you can have on the line side or supply side of the service disconnection means. So that gives you a, a kind of a laundry list of things. And this is saying, you know what? You can have that connection. We're telling you here that you can do it. But you also have to meet all the rules as well in 230.825. Now, we won't go look at that because they're pretty straightforward. If you're going to be in this installation, then you just need to go back and look at it and make sure everything is still uh, in compliance. Follow the rules. Now, it ends this at saying, it ends this, this whole uh, item here. It goes, the service equipment shall comply with the labeling requirements in 230.2 which again is going to also be a labeling. And, and one of the more important aspects of this when it comes to labeling is that now you've got two services at the building. You've got one for the um, existing service, and you have one for the new service if they're two separate services, and we have to identify them and let them know where the other one is, okay, so there's no confusion. Uh, but if they're inside the, the same piece of equipment, uh, but they're separated 
by maybe different vertical space meeting all these rules, if it's maybe like a switchgear, then you need to meet the identification and labeling requirements so there is, again, no confusing on what's what, right? So you have to still meet all the labeling rules, all the requirements, and again, so it's just making a reference to that. And it's also making a reference here to say, and the location requirements in 230.72b. And what that means is, you're probably familiar with 230.72. That's a grouping requirement. And typically, the the two to six disconnects that are permitted in 230.72, separate disconnects, for example, that they have to be grouped. However, when you're dealing with fire pumps, um, they need to be remotely separated from all those so there is no confusion so that somebody doesn't come up and turn those off but accidentally turns off the fire pump. Okay, So we don't want that to, to take place. So again, we, we want to make sure that they are remotely separated. Right, and treat it as such. So, again, keeping it the way it is. And, again, another thing to point out is this is so paramount because you don't always, when you make that connection, um, you don't always have the luxury when you're coming in with a utility. You're probably not going to have a disconnect because you're going to run it straight from the source into underground, outside of the building, and up into the fire pump room to a fire pump controller, which is also the transfer switch, everything usually is combined, then it's it's something that's considered outside of the building. So these are service conductors. But when you're using this tap option, uh, many cases, once you're in the building, you're already in the building. So now you're going to have to think about hitting and coming up with an allowance to have a disconnection means and possibly subsequent overcurrent protection located somewhere in this room where you're doing this and it needs to be remote from the other disconnects because we don't want something to be switched off inadvertently and then run the risk that somebody turned off the fire pump and they didn't think about it and they turned everything else back on and now the fire pump sits off and then all of a sudden something happens that wouldn't be a good thing right so again that's what 230.72b is trying to make sure you keep it remote now We won't repetitively go over this, but at the end of that, you'll notice these brackets. And it says 20 in bold, and then it has 9.2.2, and then paren 1. That's just making a reference to where the extract of these requirements come from, for the most part. And so this tells you that this is an extraction from another document, and that is the NFPA 20 document. And um, that is the standard for the installation of stationary pumps for fire protection. So it's regurgitating that information and putting it right here. Again, if you, I encourage people that are learning fire pumps to, at this point, go online, go look at the free version of NFPA 20, and read it and kind of see, um, get familiar with the, that other document. Always try to familiarize yourself with other standard documents. It just, it just helps enhance your knowledge and makes things a little easier as you, as you start to move forward in your learning of the NEC and how you apply things, right? Okay, so that's the utility. So you have two options here. You have a, a, you're permitted to have a separate service or you can have the existing service, again, making sure that it meets the reliability and it's able to, ha- able to handle indefinitely all those things that we talked about in 695.3a. If it does, then I can have the one service if it's adequate sized. And you take into account all the other loads, obviously, in a building because you're going to do your normal calculation and then you're going to piggyback onto that what you're doing for the fire pump. If it's of adequate supply, then you can make this tap, again, ahead of the service disconnect as long as it's not in the same area or same compartment as that service disconnect. And that's another option. And a lot of people do that, okay? All right, the next thing we'll look at is, okay, so what if I have a campus or facility that happens to have my on-site power production facility? So that is another option of an individual source that, if deemed reliable, could be what's used. And it says right here, it says, and we're looking at 695.3A2. It says on-site power production facility. It says a fire pump shall be permitted to be supplied by an on-site power production facility. Now, there is caveats to this. It says, the source facility shall be located and protected 
to minimize the possibility of damage by fire. Now, in our jurisdiction where you had that aspect came in when it came to the University of Richmond and their separate on-site power production facility, it was actually located remote so that if the building that it was supplying power to uh, caught on fire, that it was kind of remote in a sense that it was not going to be engulfed in the flames simply by proximity. It was designed in a certain way where it was isolated uh, in order to be standalone. And that was something that the engineers had to design. That was something that had to be taken into consideration. Now, usually it was centrally located anyway, so that, again, when you had those feeders, usually medium voltage that would go out from this centralized power production facility, out to certain areas that it, again, whether it hit transformers and then stepped down or whatnot, that it was situated in a certain way that, again, it was still going to be reliable and it was protected from anything. Now, of course, that didn't stop it from catching on fire, but it couldn't be a consequence to the building where the fire pump was at that the building that's in flames could do detrimental damage to the actual source that's supplying it. Right uh, Now, over time, everything's going to burn down in that building unless the fire pump can put it out. But again, the fire pump's goal is not to put out all the fire, but it's to buy you some time for people to get out the building because ultimately that fire pump's going to fail. And of course, that's what we want it to do. We want it to run to fail. Okay, We're not trying to protect it. That's why when we do do over uh, current protection on a fire pump, when we're permitted to do it, um, and we're not required, but when we do do it, we want to make sure that we're only protecting against short circuit and ground fault protection, okay? Because those are still real issues that could come up. But we're not protecting it from overload because we really want that fire pump to just burn up, right? Okay. So if you have an on-site power production facility, and again, it's, it's deemed reliable, uh, what's your uptime, how much your uptime uh, over the course of a year, and you know, maybe it's deemed reliable, um, and then that could be your, your individual source. And you're fine. You wouldn't need anything else. That would be perfectly fine to do that. Now, the next one is a little bit more complicated, but but I'll try to keep it as easy to understand as possible. This is item number three, and this is called dedicated feeder. Now, when we say dedicated feeder, it is tied to 695.3A1 in a sense that we're tapping the utility And usually when we tap the utility, since we're already in the building, it's going to end up having to terminate into a disconnection means uh, because usually we, at this point, we're going to have service conductors running in the building and it's hard, you can't protect the service conductors and you've got to limit the amount that comes into the building under 230.70A1. So we end up, when we do this tap, we end up doing a situation where we, we might have to put in a disconnection means uh, and subsequent overcurrent protection. All right. Now, if that's the case, we're going to look at 695.45 for this disconnect. But the point we want to talk about here is what does it mean when we say the dis- dedicated feeder? So I'm going to kind of paint you a picture, let you get an understanding of it, and then we'll, we'll kind of go from there. Now, it says dedicated feeder. It says a dedicated feeder shall be permitted where it is derived from a source connection as described in 695.3A1. So remember that tap we made ahead in a separate enclosure, okay? And it's done in a way that is going to be uh, not at risk from fire, things like that, that comes from the premise. And, and we let's say we did our due diligence. We make that tap, but now we're inside of the building. So typically when you have that setup, you have the tap, and then it's going to go down on a piece of equipment, and it's going to hit a disconnect that is in compliance with 695.4B. Now, when it hits that disconnect, obviously the service conductors end, and then anything out of that becomes a feeder. Well, that is your dedicated feeder. And there's going to be rules on how you run those conductors or cables, and we'll talk about that uh, in uh, another part of this series on fire pumps. But the moment that it comes out of that disconnect, it is now a feeder. And it's still okay for me to supply the feeder because basically it's the only thing that makes it not service is that we put a disconnection means in the way, right? So now it's a feeder and it's running to the fire pump controller, okay? So that is called the dedicated feeder and that's okay. 
that can still be considered an individual source because it goes hand in hand with that tap allowance that we had in uh, 695.3A1. So you see how those work together? A lot of people confused on that, but that's how it works. Okay? All right. So that pretty much covers the 695.3A1, 2, and 3. Uh, in this application of, of how we apply the individual source power. So now we're going to move on to what's called 695.3b. Now this is where we have multiple sources. Now let's assume at this point that the AHJ, the powers that be, do not feel and the utility will not provide the data or the on-site power production facility uh, is really not reliable it goes down frequently. They know this because they have a lot of outages. Okay, then it's not deemed reliable. Then we're going to be allowed to have what's called multiple sources for these fire pumps. So what it says in 695.3b, it says multiple sources in the bold text. And here's what it is. It says a dedicated, excuse me, if reliable power cannot be obtained from the sources described in 695.3a, which we discussed in extreme detail, by the way. It says power shall be supplied by one of the following. Okay, so we've deemed that it is not reliable. We have an option. When we have two options here under B, the first one is we can supply it from an individual source. It says, all right, multiple sources. Now let's read it. Number one, B1, it says, Individual sources, it says an approved combination of two or more of the sources from 695.3a. So let me describe this for you. It's very common in hospitals, very common in large facilities that have to have reliable redundancy to bring in two separate utility feeds uh, from two different directions into the facility, come to a piece of equipment that has what's called a tie key. Uh, some people say like a Kirk key or a tie key. Uh, what happens here is if I have two different sources that come in and then I come into the building, then if I've got two separate sources so that the loss of power from one will not affect the potential for the source from the other and it's designed that way, then I can consider that reliable. I have two different sources of utility power. So that is an option. Uh, and it is very common in large hospitals to do this. Okay, So that is one way to do it. I could have multiple sources from the sources in 695.3a. Now, let me make sure I make this very clear to you. It says an approved combination of two or more of the sources from 695.3a. Remember, there are three options in 695.3a, that is the electric utility, the separate service, on-site power production facility, or the dedicated feeder based on the design that we talked about using the tap ahead and outside of the same compartment as your service disconnection means would be in like switch gears, switchboards, things like that. So I have options, but I could have two in order to enhance that reliability. Okay. Now, the only thing that I will re remind you about this is that if it's a utility, I could have one of them, say, be the service coming right into the fire pump, and then the other could be the other utility that I'm tapping ahead of it, right? And so that might be in play, but you need to work with your jurisdiction and determine what is okay for you to be considered adequate for multiple sources, right? And they will kind of give you some guidance. This is not a decision that you, the electrician, will have to make. Okay. Once you get that decision, then you got to think about it. Now, the next option is item number two, and that is individual source and on-site standby generator. So this is what I see most of the time, is I'll have one of the individual sources, and because they do not deem it reliable, and I have none of the others available, then I'm going to go with an on-site standby generator. And here's what it says. It says, and again, if you're following along, we're in 695.3b2 at this point. It's titled Individual Source and On-Site Standby Generator. It says, an approved combination 
of one or more of the sources in 695.3a. So I can have one of those and an on-site standby generator complying with 695.3d. And of course, D is going to talk about capacity, connections, and adjacent adjacent disconnection means and things like that. Okay, so um, that is the rules, and they're pretty straightforward. And we'll look at that obviously when we get there. But that's pretty straightforward. So I've got a source that I can pick from these individual sources that we've discussed at nausea, and then I'm going to add an on-site standby generator. Okay, now that is it. Now. One thing I should mention, there is an exception here, and there's an exception to both B1 and B2, and the need for an alternate source of power uh, is not required when I have backup engine-driven fire pumps, okay, or backup steam turbine uh, type of fire pumps. Then I don't need that backup. You with me? Okay? So, all right. So anyway, there you go. That's kind of the, we're not going to get too deep into the exceptions, but uh, you do have some exceptions there that you need to to be aware of. All right. So that's where we're going to stop in this episode because the next one talks about multiple building campus style complexes. And so we're going to pick up in the next episode of 695 where we're going to pick up in multi-building campus style complexes so I can kind of maybe paint you a picture of what that's like. And we also want to take this in pieces, say, because we're going to keep it about an hour each one so that I kind of keep your attention and keep you on it. Now, if you want to learn more about the National Electrical Code, I encourage you to go to our website, masterthenec.com. And over there, you got courses on the NEC, the Fast Tracks program. Uh, we have commercial, industrial. We have residential programs, all of those things. And we have grounding and bonding, which is, again, one of my most favorite courses to teach, grounding and bonding. Um, very affordable, great content, great books. Go check it out over on Master the NEC. Dot com, or you can also check out the Electricians Academy. That's our new academy, um, and that is over at electricalinstructor.com. So check it out. But anyway, that was part one on fire pumps. Sit back, take it all in, maybe go back and listen to it again so that you can really grasp it, kind of feel all of the requirements, and then check us in part two. Till next time, folks, stay safe. God bless. <music>